Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Melissa Bradley. Melissa is the definition of a tri-sector leader with social sector experience as the managing partner of 1863 Ventures, a nonprofit accelerator of new majority entrepreneurs. She has private sector experience as the co-founder of Eureka, a venture-backed platform for entrepreneurs to access the people, programs, and connections that they need to grow. And she has extensive public sector experience working as a political appointee under both Presidents Obama and Clinton. She worked in the Treasury Department in the Clinton White House and more recently as the director of the Social Innovation Fund under President Obama. She's also an adjunct professor of impact investing and social entrepreneurship at Georgetown University. During our conversation, we talk about the common theme across much of Melissa's work, which is support for traditionally underrepresented entrepreneurs, whether through investment or ecosystem building and mentorship. Let's jump into the conversation. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. For many years now, you've been building entrepreneurial support ecosystems for historically underserved founders, from the Entrepreneurial Development Institute you launched back in the early 90s through Eureka just a a year or two ago. What led to your passion for supporting underrepresented founders, and particularly through ecosystem building? Yeah, I think there were two to three things that really led that. One was a very early and not positive experience I had as an entrepreneur where I had put together what I thought was a pretty good business plan and went to the SBA and they told me that I would never qualify for an investment because I was black, I was a female, and they didn't know any black females who were successful in financial services. And luckily, I walked out that door without getting myself in trouble or having any fights or cursing (laughs) anyone out. But when I got to the street level, I said, I never want this to happen again to another entrepreneur who looks like me. So that has really been my my motivation. And I think the various iterations really reflect how ecosystem building has evolved, as well as how the needs of entrepreneurs have actually evolved. You know, the reality is when I started Teddy, that was for young kids. And I learned so much that when you go through and work with a kid, you get the entire family. And and there were some good things we were able to do, but there were clear blockages in the system that I could do all the great entrepreneurial training I wanted to do, but there was not a single bank that was going to take on this young entrepreneur, not to mention their family, because a lot of our folks, unfortunately, were living in public housing and didn't have access to wealth or even wealth creation. And so I think the diversity of of organizations from, from Teddy to now 1863 Ventures to Eureka, I think speaks to a maturity that is happening and that organizations have stepped up and really embraced uh, ecosystem builders like a Kaufman. And I think the sophistication and the diversity of economic development folks and traditional finance folks and venture folks and entrepreneurship folks having real conversations to say, this is not just about training somebody or helping somebody become an entrepreneur, recognizing then that there's a whole plethora of support from financing, marketing support, et cetera, they need. We're actually all finally having those conversations together. So the organizations really reflect the growth and maturity that I've experienced personally. I think the ecosystem is experienced in terms of how can you really help underserved entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Well, and what do you still see as key areas of need moving forward? I think, unfortunately, the biggest need still remains access to capital. 
And, and I'll be honest, it's one that I think we're going to be grappling with for a little bit longer. Um, I had mm-hmm. the privilege to work in Treasury under the Clinton administration, so I certainly understand uh, that as a regulated industry, there are just some inherent barriers for anybody to access capital. Uh, but I also think there are systemic challenges within the finance sector around underwriting and the use of algorithms and the use of Fair Isaac as opposed to alternative credit scores, all the way down to where is the literal physical placement of a bank branch? And how do bank decisions get made? If they don't happen at the branch and I have to go all the way up to some centralized location, then my personal relationship means nothing. And it really is then all about the algorithms. And I don't have a chance to explain to whatever AI bot that is going to run my ability mm-hmm. to achieve capital. So I think that still remains, unfortunately, the biggest barrier. I, you know, I see some relief with the kind of creation of all these new funds or vehicles, but in some respects, I think there's now more opportunities for black and brown and women entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, they don't reflect the diversity of tools. So it's still kind of either debt or equity. And I think there's so much that could be in between as, as we're looking at revenue-based financing in, in 1963 and others are doing the same. But I do think we're still in this copy and paste mode when we think about what are some of the outputs of funds. And we just got to get a little bit more creative within the regulatory construct to say, how do we really meet these entrepreneurs where they are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we've talked about some of the staggering numbers on this show and, and elsewhere. Um, I, I think it's about 2% of VC goes to women, uh, Black women, even though I believe they're still the, the most entrepreneurial demographic in the country Absolutely. in terms of the fastest rate of, of starting new businesses get a fraction of a percent of, of venture funding. And I don't even know, you know, we, we talk a lot about venture when it's such a small percentage, uh, like, I don't know what, 90 plus percent of businesses never even raise venture funding. Absolutely. Right? It's got a certain <laughs> shine to it for some reason. It's all those TV shows, Alex. It's all those doggone TV. That's, that's, Everybody that's wants right. to be famous or that's on TV. Right. So it's those daggone shows. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so you you talked about a couple of the challenges, but is it mostly just racism? I mean, is it subconscious biases and are there other reasons that the funding gap persists? I think it's all of those things, right? I think if you look at debt, right, the, the primary challenge in being able to underwrite debt is one's connection to cash flow that can cover the debt and the ability to actually pay it back if it's ever called. Well, to your point, if if black and brown entrepreneurs are underfunded from the get-go, we face a black tax and therefore all statistics show we do not have the same net worth as our white peers, it's kind of hard to ask for both. I think you can certainly ask and expect cash flow to come and go and be able to pay off the loan on a Mm -hmm. regular basis. But certainly you cannot ask if I have a $500,000 loan and I'm an entrepreneur that is bootstrapped and no one's given me any investment, that that can be called at any moment in time. It's just unrealistic and you'll take me out. So I think there are just, again, some challenges around the risk tolerance of banking institutions to invest without understanding the literal journey and plight of a Black entrepreneur and, and their connection or disconnection with wealth creation because of historic systemic bias and racism. I think when it comes to equity investment, I think it's a little easier to understand is that it's pattern recognition, right? The reality is you're willing to throw away a certain amount of money, but somewhere in that pile, there has to be at least one one person who's going to have an exit. And I think what I find is is three things. One, most entrepreneurs of color, just like women though, tend to ask for what they think they can get than what they need. And what they don't understand is when a venture investor hears, well, I only need 500,000. The entrepreneur thinks, oh, I'm, I'm asking for an amount that seems reasonable. But I could look at it, you could look at it, and the investor's looking at it going, 
you actually need a million point five to make this successful. So I think there's a natural underselling out of fear of, of being rejected. I think the other piece of that is that there's pattern recognition. So I feel more comfortable with you because we have the same social capital. We know the same people because at the end of the day, that's what venture is. You have no idea if the business is going to make it or not, but you're at least counting on that entrepreneur to have the wherewithal to make those pivots and those adjustments. And let's be honest, if it goes belly up, you're going to trust him at least to maybe have some skills and learn something for the next time. We have social capital, but it's not the same. I didn't meet my my uh, fellow black CEO till I exited my first company. And I was like, where have you been all my life? Because I sure could have used you many months ago. So I think that's a big hurdle. And then I think the third piece is, is that the reality is I think that where there has been pattern recognition of not seeing us, I think there's been negative pattern recognition where you have seen black entrepreneurs show up as, as we think about all these television shows, but not the right businesses are asking for venture capital, right? I am a venture-backed entrepreneur. That is really best for companies that you really think are going to be unicorns, billion-dollar businesses. So if you don't make it, you're at least a $100 million business and you return the capital. But it also is probably better served from a tech company where you need that glide path to build something before you can tackle customer acquisition. If you're a CPG company, you're in health or beauty or makeup or something, you don't really need venture capital, right? Because you need a little bit of cash, but it's not going to generate the same returns. And so I do think that there's a mismatch because of all this popularity venture that the wrong entrepreneurs are showing up in these offices. And in all fairness to the investors, it's probably saying, these are not the entrepreneurs I want to invest in. And instead of recognizing that, you know, about 20% of black businesses are tech companies, they're not the ones that are showing up. And so I do think we need some training on the investor side, bank, you know, debt or equity around systemic racism and how to manage bias. And I think we also need to do some better training for the entrepreneurs so they're actually going after the right type of capital so that they're not a no for all the wrong reasons. And they're understanding what they actually need. So they're asking for the right amount instead of thinking they're doing somebody a favor by asking for less because that doesn't serve them well in the long term. Mm-hmm. Which comes back to the educational component and the, the the ecosystem building that that we talked about a little bit. I spoke with Jewel Burke Solomon a couple of weeks ago on the on the show, and speaking of positive pattern recognition, a black woman who sold her business Absolutely. to Amazon at twenty six, I think. But um, one of the things we talked about was was their use at Collab Capital of some non traditional financing mechanisms. Um, and I know that you're you're a big fan of some of these alternative investment structures. How do you think about deal structuring at 1863? Yeah, so a huge fan of what Jewel are doing. And, and we are both part of the, the Kaufman Fellows class in getting these alternative vehicles up and running. You know, we first started by saying, what is wrong with what's out there? And, and if over 80% of our businesses are in the CPG retail or supplier diversity business to business space, we know it's not venture capital. But we have a few. And then we realized that a lot of our folks are, you know, primary breadwinners in their household. They have leveraged their businesses to the hilt. So they don't have credit scores that are going to get them a loan. So what was the right vehicle that we could really serve our entrepreneurs? And we realized it was revenue-based financing. Because a lot of our entrepreneurs, luckily, have first-look opportunities with several major retailers because we have partnerships with them. We know that the potential is there. And so we're solving the market access problem. So we're not just giving them money and saying, well, good luck, call us back. We're saying, no, we've, you've gone through the accelerator. We've de-risked your business. We've actually now created a pathway to a partnership to sell and promote your products. So really all that is left is capital. And so we're able to use revenue-based financing to be based on character and not collateral or credit, which is a huge thing. And we're because of revenue-based financing, because we're very clear of the erratic cash flow of Black business owners, we're doing revenue-based financing, so the fixed amount that we take, but we're not tanking the businesses. 
we found that some of our entrepreneurs, when they were able to get debt, whether it was from a private bank or an SBA, the debt service on that was actually taking out any net profit they would have on a monthly basis, and they could never get ahead to then go on to get refinancing to make that better. So we tried to be thoughtful around what were the challenges that they were facing in either side of the marketplace, and how could we ease that, and what was the right vehicle? And obviously, Jewel is using royalty financing, which I think is perfect for what she's doing in terms of, of the types of companies, and I think to often we see debt and equity as just universal vehicles for everyone, when indeed there is a plethora of products in between. Mm -hmm. And you really want to make sure that there is a perfect match between the type of capital and the type of business so that wherever the trajectory is going, you don't tank the company, you don't overinvest in the company, but you allow them to keep pace and then ultimately pay you back. Could you give an example of a type of company for which revenue-based financing might make sense and, and how you know, it, it better aligns the incentives of, of the fund and the entrepreneur. Sure. So we have we have several, like I said, CPG companies. So we have, I'll give an example of, of a shea butter company. Um, they had gone through several of the programs. They were referred to us because they were actually trying to get into Target. So they had proven that the product worked. We, we don't do startups, but they had proven the product worked. And they said, look, we have this opportunity to get into this store, a couple of stores, but we're going to need some help really navigating that. So there was funding that was provided by someone else to at least get them in the stores, which is pretty typical. Our, our entrepreneurs, because of their tracks, you're able to get usually angel funding or a little bit of friends and family. So she said, great, it was successful. And we really focused on de-risking the business, managing distribution, production, so that it would work and target would see it get to scale. Well, all of a sudden, she was going from a few stores to 200 stores. And she was like, oh, my God, who's going to invest in me? And you know, most financiers do not get excited just because you have a purchase order from Target because that means absolutely nothing and it's not legally binding. It's basically, if you can get the product to my door, I'll let you in. We realized that was the perfect place, that if we had entrepreneurs who had some opportunity for distribution or some opportunity for a contract with a large company to do cleaning or to do food provision or to do any kind of service from a supplier diversity perspective, the opportunity was there, but they needed an on-ramp to get staff to get product, to do operational excellence upgrades, whatever, that no bank was going to take on. And so that's where our investment comes in to really help the company be well prepared to be able to take on those purchase orders or take and sign that contract and have confidence they're going to be able to execute. And we also work with them to say, make sure the margins are right, that you're actually covering your costs and you have the ability to pay us back. So I think anywhere there's a scalable opportunity for a business owner, to then see that revenue is going to grow over time, but there is a series of sunk costs and ramp up costs that nobody else is able to bear. That's exactly where revenue-based finance comes in because we have the patience and we have the flexibility that as you're ramping up in your cash flow and you're not net positive yet, it's okay. We'll wait. You know, if we say our average percentage each month is, I don't know, seven to ten percent, if you didn't make anything, we don't take any money. But if you made five thousand or fifty thousand, then great, pay us back. But I think that's where as, as businesses are beginning to scale, I don't care what color you are, what gender you are, everybody needs some patient capital. And that's what we believe RBF provides for the entrepreneurs. Do do these non-traditional financing mechanisms scare off investors who maybe aren't as knowledgeable about things outside of equity and convertible debt? Like, are you worried that it will disincentivize later investment by having this, this revenue share on their, their books? 
So we've structured they pay us back in five years. And that's probably, okay. you know, it's probably three to five years before these entrepreneurs would be ready to take on any kind of venture financing where they've actually worked out the kinks and it is very clear that they are scalable. And now there's a trajectory to go from 200 stores to say 2000 stores. So I think our continued role of de-risking plays well with subsequent equity investors, particularly okay. after they paid us back. I think the challenges that you've raised is that when they need more money while we're still in the deal, we're a debt investment. So we have senior position. So we have seen some people say, well, how do we get you out? I said, feel free to pay us back. Um, so we have <laughs> had conversation with equity investors say, we'll pay you back. I mean, you can always refinance us out. Um, but so far, we haven't had any challenges from downstream investors. And in, in many cases, they've actually said, we appreciate that you're absorbing some of the harder costs. I think our greater challenge has been to potential LPs who don't understand these alternative vehicles and say, well, are you really going to get your money back? And so I think we've got a little bit more, a few more investments that we need to make and probably everybody else who's doing this to convince the, the limited partner world that guess what? There are other viable ways between debt and equity. There's a whole world mm -hmm. in between and guess what? We actually can get paid and we can actually make money. So my hope is, you know, give us three to five years, give all of us collectively three to five years. I think the LP folks will finally get on the bandwagon. Right. Instead of entrepreneurial education, we need investor education around a lot of these. <laughs> all the way, all day, all the way. Yes, you yeah. nailed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, you, you mentioned briefly that we're seeing more funds that are investing in in black and brown entrepreneurs. Is that just an acknowledgement that this is a market inefficiency? You have this really entrepreneurial demographic that you know has traditionally been underfunded, and people are seeing it as as an alpha. I think there is some of that. Um, I will say we've had several conversations, and I want to distinguish you know funds that are focused on black entrepreneurs that are now being created by larger institutions versus funds being created by new fund managers, right? I think the trajectory for a new fund manager is, you know, your first fund is always just putting a stake in the ground. And so I think they're going to probably make a little bit, lose a lot, and really just trying to work out the mechanics. And the challenge I would say for the entrepreneurial community is most of those are still financing tech businesses or highly scalable businesses, which again is only about 20%. So you still have 80% right. who are more revenue generating as opposed to growth focus that are left out of that equation. I think for the companies that are taking this stand, and I think the challenge they're having, and we've had a few call us saying, look, we are all in, but we have no idea what this portfolio performance is supposed to look like. And so we have been willing to share. We have sanitized our information. We've been willing to share the history and trajectory of our entrepreneurs and how they've performed and how our investment is performing. Hopefully some other people have. But I think a lot of people made these commitments and then didn't realize, one, how hard it is to attract entrepreneurs of color because I think we're so used to being told, no, we're a little suspect when you pick up the phone and say, I want to talk to you. And I think, two, these commitments were made without anybody really digging under the hood around the economics of a business because all the predecessor funds, honestly, based on research I tried to do, nobody wanted to share their information mm -hmm. because they said, well, they're not performing on par with white peers. And I'm like, well, of course they're not. That's not the outcome and the goal. The goal is to be able to establish a performance record for them, but that doesn't exist. So I, I do think that some of these funds are still well-intentioned and doing the best they can. I think they saw a huge market opportunity. I think they heard the cry of, of saying there's not enough money going to black entrepreneurs. I think there's been enough outliers like the jewels of the world and others where they go, oh, this can really you know become something. But I don't know that anybody picked up the phone and had that conversation with Jules saying, would you have been ready for equity on month three? Because you probably would have said, heck no, I'm not ready for venture. And so I think we've we've forged ahead with some new funds, but I think the timing and, and the ability for our entrepreneurs to get to scale to receive that is a little slower than they expected. So I hope they're patient. I hope they mm -hmm. hang in there. And then I hope they begin to socialize that the returns and, and the portfolio 
portfolio mix is going to look completely different. But let's be honest, there's not a lot of conversation about that and not a lot of research about that. Mm-hmm. So changing gears a little bit, in addition to your entrepreneurial ecosystem building, you're a professor of impact investing at Georgetown and an active researcher in the space. Having been at this work for a while, is it working? Where are we seeing progress and where is the field still still lagging behind? I think it's working for some. I would say I remain frustrated when I talk to LPs for the fund and they say, well, are you an impact investor? And I go, yeah, well, well, how are you an impact investor? And if I don't match the E, the S, or the G, as they have <laughs> framed it for themselves, then they don't seem to understand. And, and I will say there have been many calls where I just stop the conversation and say, you know what, it is pretty clear that you are not going to invest in us. So let me just give you my soliloquy on impact in communities of color. And so I do think that there is a challenge of how historically, having taught this now for nine years, um, how we have quantified and, and defined impact. And I think we have not used metrics that easily translate to the trajectory of wealth creation in, in communities of color, even for women. I think I think anything that is not environment or tech or something else has not really been core to that conversation. So I do think there's work to be done to explain that you investing in, in African-American entrepreneurs, if, if we had been invested as our white peers had been invested, we would have created 9 million jobs that don't currently exist. Wow. And we would have contributed $300 billion to the GDP that hasn't happened. And we would have over a million Black businesses, new businesses, as opposed to the slow rate the businesses are starting. And I think City came out trying to shift that narrative a bit with their report that racism is costing us $16 trillion. I think the challenge is people just stopped at the headline and didn't really dig down that when you invest in communities of color, not only because we're the fastest growing demographics, but we're also the largest job creators in these sectors that are not tech that actually could benefit everybody. I mean, it's like we could actually help an entire community, which then creates a perpetual cycle of wealth. If you have businesses that create jobs and stores that sell products, then guess what? People can afford homes and you have less defaults. You have people that can, you know, have upward mobility and, and expand. And I think that's where this impact field has not been, I would say, willing to say, what does impact look like through a racial lens? Now, I know there are some groups now that are working on that, that are convening impact investors. So I'm optimistic. Maybe for the next 12 to 24 months, we'll have something. But I think some of that was just the default. It's easy to talk about environmental impact. It's hard to talk about anti-racism impact since right. you're trying to solve for something in a you know five to 10 year trajectory that has actually existed for 400 plus years. But I'm optimistic because these people want to have the conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like in the space, the conversation the last couple of years have moved more and more towards asset management and partly just because there's so much money there. But, you know, you're talking about supporting small business owners. It's really hard to do that at scale, right? Like you have to actually be working in the communities with the small business owners. And there is this disconnect where, you know, I think more than 50% of of adults in the country are employed by small businesses. But but a lot of the conversations are happening at the PE funds and (laughs) of the world and... It's uh, there's a bit of a disconnect there. Um, and I think that reflects the, the general conversation right around the economy, right? I mean, I think no matter right. where you fell mm-hmm. on, the, on the political line, the fact that we were having conversations about record market gains 
while at the same time reporting highest records of unemployment Mm -hmm. and highest, now we keep exceeding it, and then highest records of death. And I would sit there going, oh my God, how do I explain this to my kids that the stock market is by no means an indicator of the economic well-being of our country? And so I I do think that, you know, I don't blame the asset managers because that is the world that they live in, where their livelihood is driven by the economic markets. But you and I both know, to your point, if over 50% of small business creating jobs, that is not our reality on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And we certainly saw some of that structural racism with the like the PPP lending and, and the, the process through which that went out last year. Yep. So you mentioned earlier working under President Clinton, and you also served as a presidential appointee under Obama as well. Yes, um, yes. Given your your trisector experience, are there certain impact areas where capital markets are the right mechanism for creating change? And others where, you know, that would maybe be better served by public sector intervention? Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, under Clinton, I worked in Treasury. And I think that I probably had more bruises on my head from banging my head on the desk, <laughs> recognizing truly I, I went in eyes wide open and ears closed. I just thought I, I could solve this. Like if a group of us all got together, we could fix this. But it's a very complicated system. And, and as a finance major, I probably should have known that, but we're all eager when we're younger. Uh, and so I think that it was clear to me there are levers. There are clear policy levers that you can pull, but it is naive based on the risk aversion of a government, and rightly so, how much you can do to be catalytic. You can do a lot of things to sustain. You can do a lot of things to grow, but you don't know what you can do catalytic without you really would fundamentally undo the banking system, which would we all know be a lot from a regulatory perspective. And we certainly don't want to repeat what happened right before Obama took office, where the bottom falls out of this whole thing. Being able to serve under President Obama and serving um, as the lead on the White House Social Innovation Fund really clarified for me that there's a role for both, right? The the whole social impact bond movement, which we know is not really a bond and it's evolved, but, but the idea is that I had the privilege to issue that first program. And what I realized was there are a set of costs, just like revenue-based financing, that other people are not willing to invest in because it doesn't fit their investment thesis. But mm. what an amazing thing that the government was willing to take the catalytic risk, paired up mostly with philanthropy, to say, look, we're going to invest 18, 24 months in the infrastructure, in getting you to scale. And some of those, let's be honest, were sunk costs. But we felt like if we did that and we mitigated your future risk, then other investors would come. And those were private investors. And guess what? They did. And so I do think that where the government has the capacity by agency or by dollars to be catalytic and and take a little bit more risk in, in standing up and fixing the pipes and building the infrastructure, the markets will come. But we have to realize that there's a set of expenses and costs that the markets just can never touch for the very reason we just mm-hmm. talked about. It, it drives a massive part of, of the wealth creation in this country. And you just can't tinker with that. But there's got to be a balance where we get the government to slightly step outside their comfort zone, identify some dollars and start people on their path. And then to get the larger capital markets just to come down just a little bit down their ladder to meet people to have a smooth glide pass. Because right now what you have is the valley of death. I get you this far, then you sink. And then we hope somebody from the private markets gets you up there. We've got to fill that bridge. And I think, you know, not necessarily the social impact bonds is the answer, let me be really clear, but I think the lever of government capital levered against foundation capital because they can absorb those sunk costs, 
but still having a rigorous requirements around outputs and outcomes allows the capital markets then to meet the entrepreneurs and carry them through. Yeah, it feels like that role of being catalytic has fallen in a lot of cases to foundations or family offices or some of the other entities that are investing that have a little bit more flexibility um, because you're kind of, you know, by definition, you're taking on outsized risk, right? And therefore not the risk return it's going to be quote unquote concessionary, right? Because of the disproportionate risk that is required to innovate and, and figure out, you know, whether or not some of these financing mechanisms work and, and policies work. Absolutely. But I think there's, you know, I think for foundations or family offices, though, I think that's where there's an opportunity for them to use their own internal levers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think about, I think about 1863 Venture Fund, right? We said we wanted to potentially go into the fund business, not because we thought it was sexy, but our entrepreneurs were not getting funded, right? CDFIs were not giving enough money and the banks were not talking to them. So we needed that glide path. And so they gave us grant dollars to help stand up our systems. And then they made an investment in us, right? And if we're lucky, our investment will actually cover the grant that they gave us. Um, but I think that's significant, right? The same thing for a family office, right? You have family offices that have ideally allocations for grants, allocations for PRIs, and allocations for fixed income. If you really look at those collectively, as opposed to, well, this is the charitable side, and this is the private market side, you know, I think Omidyar put that together. And I don't know what their structure is now, but they were one of the first to say, we all need to sit in the room together. So I do think that it, it is really possible if people begin to not just look to institutions to solve the problem, but look at what are the right buckets of money that can be levered and what are the requirements and the risk tolerance and the cost of that capital. I think the problem is people just start pulling from buckets and they create these capital stacks that are not sustainable. But I think there's real ways to say, again, what is it that gets this started? What is it allows it to grow? And then, wow, what does that capital need to make it scale? And in some cases, it could literally all exist within one institution, but you got to get all those people talking together. Yeah, you you talked about social impact bonds and it's a early example of a public-private partnership. And and what what are some of the other ways that the public sector and impact investors can can interact and, and work together? So I think one, you know, policy, but I think that's policy from a governmental perspective and policy from an institutional perspective. I, I wish, I, I think it's coming, but I wish the kind of impact investment community had done more to push, for example, racial equity in investment policies and really just mm-hmm. turn them upside down, right? But those IPS, they still really look the same for everybody. So I think that there's an opportunity to say, well, this is what the government is doing and this is how they're pushing the needle. We can't do that, but, but where do we fall in kind of a happy middle? So I think there is some internal policy and federal policy. I think in terms of money, I think allocation, right? The government, right? Treasury allocates money that can go out for loans and allocates money that can go to the wind. No, I mean, asset allocation is critical. And again, I think if people are able to say and step back and say, these are the goals I'm trying to achieve, how do I reverse engineer the appropriate capital stacks apportioned as needed to be able to achieve those outcomes? And I find that sometimes people tend to hold on tightly to the wrong pots of money for (laughs) all the wrong reasons. So I do think a a recalibration of their assets and their portfolio and really making sure it's going to help them achieve their outcomes. But I would argue that just some minor distribution of a couple of points across the grant, the PRI, and the fixed income could actually really make a big difference. And then the final thing I would say, you know, particularly having also run tides for a while with, with family offices, 
get out of the box. <laughs> um, you know, I think I say the same thing to government, uh, although government, oftentimes you have to get out the box because you've got to talk <laughs> to your constituents. But I think there's not enough foundation leaders. And certainly I would like to see family offices and I get the need for privacy, but there's not enough folks who are actually on the ground to understand the work. And so it becomes mm-hmm. the tipping point is a, a document or a memo from BCG or McKinsey. That cannot be the needle mover for these communities. And so I do think with all due respect, to all consultants, they've got to start talking to real entrepreneurs to understand what the problems are, because not all of them can be well captured in a 15 to 20 page research report. And I wish that obviously both sides could do a lot more of that. I know under Obama, we would always invite various stakeholders into the White House and have conversations to talk to them. But we would even push back and say, stop bringing the people who are leading the associations because you actually talk to the people who are the members. And I think we've got to go down far enough to make sure you're getting the right data points because just like a politician who represents a state, they're going to give you the averages across the state. They're not going to tell you what's happening in each city. But let's be clear, what's happening in each city is very unique. A head of a chamber, a head of some other business organization is going to give you the general swath of the membership. But there's going to be some nuance if you're a woman. There's going to be some nuance if you're a Black entrepreneur. So I do think, again, we've got to really go under the hood and not just say, well, let's get the people who are running because they must know. They know some, but that they're not walking in that, those entrepreneurs' mm-hmm. shoes. I was talking to um, Dr. Angela Jackson at New Profit recently, and she she uses the phrase "proximate leaders," which is the idea of like Absolutely. people who are who have lived experiences that, that are really passionate about the work that that they are doing, and those are the type of entrepreneurs that that they target. As a thought leader in this space, coming out of the the very public racial injustices that we saw in 2020, you've said that you received dozens, maybe hundreds, of calls from people who are asking what they can do to support entrepreneurs of color. Um, I'm sure we could talk about this, you know, for hours and we, we don't have we don't have that time, unfortunately. But, you know, at a high level, what are a couple tangible steps that listeners of the show can take that would be impactful? Yeah, I'm not sure the message changes much. I think one, get out of the Eiffel Tower and, and get some boots on the ground and, and really talk to folks to understand what is happening. I think even news stories didn't always do justice of what was happening and oftentimes mm-hmm. slanted towards what wasn't happening versus what was some of the good stuff. So I think one is I would say Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's number one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number two, recognize this is a longitudinal process. You are not going to eradicate systemic bias in six months or six minute conversation. So really figure out what is your commitment. If it's only six minutes, awesome. And just be honest. I only got six minutes. Help me figure this out. But really be clear. This is a long-term path. And so you've got to carve out the time and you've got to have the intentionality. And then the final thing I would say is after you've done all that research, let us know what it is. Like, don't hold it to yourself. Ideally, it's going to unlock some capital. It's going to unlock some maybe non-financial resources that can help. But my greatest fear now is a lot of conversations. You don't know what they're doing with that information. And my greatest fear is they're sharing it, but it's not necessarily accurate or it's being shared with a bias or it's being shared of, yeah, we're not going to do it because it was too hard. Well, of course it's too hard because you're trying to undo 400 plus years, but it doesn't mean it's not meaningful work. So I hope also that people are willing to really share what made them go ahead or what made them go back so that we in the field can understand what is our potential for change and how much longer do we have to keep waiting. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and ties into the work that you said you're doing at 1863 and, you know, releasing a lot of the, the data around your investments once you've scrubbed it. And it just de-risks that investment for future investors, right? And, and hopefully Absolutely. allows more people to, to enter the space. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about before I, before we sign off here? The one only thing I would say is that 
It's not as hard as people think. What I will say is that a Black entrepreneur and a white entrepreneur are no different and that they are highly ambitious, very passionate, and probably have lofty goals well beyond what they can see for themselves in the next six to 12 months. But I would say there's certainly enough experience with our work and many others around risk mitigation and adequate preparation and capital readiness that say, while the returns may be different for the moment, we know that they have the potential to be extremely successful. And the other thing I would say is that I don't do this as a Black woman who is gay because I just care about my community, but you mentioned it, right? Black women entrepreneurs are the fastest growing entrepreneurs. Latinx business are the fastest growing businesses. And anecdotal data has said that white entrepreneurship has declined 30 to 40% since COVID. I'm a finance person. Two plus two is always mm-hmm. four. You bet and go and invest where the market is. And the market is with new majority entrepreneurs. And you may be comfortable, right, that your state has gone majority minority. But but the statistics just show this is what the future of America is. It's not a racial imperative. It's not a moral imperative. It's an economic imperative, to your point. If we're the fastest growing businesses creating the most jobs, I'm just baffled by the fact that people would not have an element of intentionality to be able to invest in them. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And thank you. you know, really, really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Melissa Bradley of 1863 Ventures and a number of other really interesting and innovative organizations. If you want to learn more about the work that she's doing, as always, you can check out our blog at socapglobal.com where we'll provide links to, among other things, the recent town hall hosted by 1863 Ventures, where they provided resources for both individuals and institutions who are interested in supporting new majority founders. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, uh, post about it on on social media, give us a a good rating and and review on Apple Podcasts. We always... uh, appreciate that. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com where you can feel free to send us guest ideas, comments, questions, feedback, or just to say hello. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.